Shalom from here in the Holy Land. Welcome to Conversations with Yael Podcast. I'm your host, Yael Eckstein, President and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Each month, I will invite leading thought leaders, pastors, rabbis, and other influential guests to discuss the importance of Israel in the world today. For those familiar with my weekly podcast, Nourish Your Biblical Roots, which explores the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, this podcast takes that understanding and translates it into ongoing support for Israel among Christians and the critical need to nurture that support with the next generation of Christians. Join me now as we begin this important dialogue. Today's podcast is very near and dear to my heart. On February 6, 2019, just three years ago, my father, my Abba, Rabbi Chiel Eckstein, died suddenly from a heart attack. My father was the founder of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, and I had the blessing of working alongside him for almost 15 years. When he passed away, I lost both a loving parent and my mentor. On today's podcast, I want to celebrate my father's life and his groundbreaking work by focusing on who he was and the contribution that he made to the world. And to do that, I couldn't think of a better guest to have on the podcast than another exceptional member of my family, my father's beloved younger brother and my uncle, Uncle Beryl Eckstein. Few people knew my father better. Beryl saw my father through it all, from the beginning of the fellowship, through the difficult early years, to the years of unprecedented success. Beryl has led a remarkable life, too. He was born in Ottawa, Canada, the youngest son of my grandparents, Rabbi Simon and Belle Eckstein. Like my father, he went to Yeshiva University in New York City, and he chose to pursue a career in the commodity trading industry. After working for the legendary Philip Brothers firm, Beryl and some colleagues started their own firm, Trafigura, which today is one of the three largest trading companies in the world. Since retiring in 2010, Beryl has pursued two of his greatest passions, Jewish education and assisting the poor. He has helped run the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, and he started his own charity, which brings donated goods to people around the world. These days, Beryl spends most of his time studying Bible and Talmud, managing his organization, helping others, exercising, and enjoying God's blessings. Uncle Beryl, welcome, welcome, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Yael, and thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts of uh, my brother and your father. Uh, This is a very emotional and personal podcast and reflection for both of us. Um, But before we talk about my father, Uncle Beryl, I want to talk about the older generations in our family. I believe that everyone in our family has been shaped in some way by the generations that came before us. A lot of people don't realize that Jews have always lived in Israel, even before the establishment of the state in 1948. And our family goes back many generations in Jerusalem. So can you tell me a little bit about our family roots in Jerusalem? Sure. Our family history in Israel begins approximately 200 years ago, when Baruch Shor moved to Israel from the Ukraine in approximately 1830. The family moved to Tzvat, then to Tiberias, and then after the earthquake in Tiberias, the family moved to the old city of Jerusalem to the Muslim quarter. In 1848, Baruch Shor's son opened up the first winery in Jerusalem. The family tradition of winemaking continues to till, till today. The family expanded, and my father was actually born about 150 yards from the Temple Mount. Wow. We, the riots of 1929 caused the family to both sell the winery, and moved to Meisharim. It's an actually an interesting story, which I heard in my father's, um, when I sat Shiva, for my, when my brother and I sat Shiva and my sisters for my father. My great aunt told us how in the 20s, every Friday, because they lived so close to the 
Temple Mount. Every Friday after the Mufta would speak, the kids would riot and they would try and start beating up the Jewish kids and even the women after the prayer services. One family, one Arab family protected my the Shore family and they would oh. never come near. And in the riots in 1929, someone stood guard at my father's house and they stood guard there. And Yechiel actually, after he heard that story, tried to track down that Arab family, was never able to. But my family wow. was never hurt. Yeah, it's an amazing that is story. Amazing. That I never, yeah. yeah, I always wondered, how was it 1929 during the riots when our family was literally right there? How did nothing happen? And this is the first time hearing about that. There's one local, Arab family Muslim. now. Wow. And as, as I said, Yael, the reality was my my family was in the wine business. So it was sort of like a there barter was an almost. <laughs> it was an interest because the, uh, it, the Arabs would quietly come, um, which who don't drink wine, would actually come and, and work with my uh, – my family there. That is my grandmother's side of the family. That was the family of Shore. The Eckstein side of the family can be traced to a young orphan who fled the pogroms of Russia in the 1880s. His name was Yechiel Tzvi Eckstein. He lived in Meisharim, was a pious man who worked as a shochet, as a butcher. In the 1930s, he went with my father, my grandfather and his wife to America to work to support his 16 children. Wow. So only the four of them went to America. After a long boat ride, which must have taken weeks, my great-grandmother landed in America with the family, with my father and grandfather. She stayed for eight hours, and she said, I cannot live outside the Holy Land. So she took the boat right back to Israel. Yechiel was the only one of my generation to meet my Baba Gittel, my great-grandmother. So she went back knowing the holiness of Israel. And that is the story of my family, really, of our family. So the wow. three of them, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, worked all of them because they were the oldest. My grandfather was the oldest of 16, and my father was the oldest of his children, of, of his siblings. They worked as butchers. And Little Rock, Arkansas, right? They went to Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I will say that they were chased out in the middle of the night. Wow. Um, and they went to Brooklyn. All these stories uh, I never heard. I needed a podcast <laughs> to hear them. Yeah. <laughs> so they, um, I don't know the full story. I just know that they left in the middle of the night and they came to New York. My great grandfather went back um, and with my grandfather and brought um, his, my brothers, my father's siblings, my uncles and my aunt back to America where they lived um, for many years. The Bible tells us that the fourth generation will return to Israel. My father was blessed to live, to see the return of his children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren to Israel. This is a blessing that my father never took for granted and is also one that didn't happen without my father instilling in each of us a tremendous love for the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Wow. Okay. So now I understand where all of these voices in my head from the time I was born in Chicago of go back to Israel, go back to Israel. This is all of our uh, family who put it in motion. And also the love dream. of wine, Yael. <laughs> the love of wine. It's, it's in our family blood. Okay. And, and actually, the there's, there's, there are about six wineries of different companies that are all related to our family. So it is really something that's been instilled in us. First of all, it's the work ethic. And it's also the, um, you know, helping others. My, my great-grandfather was a wine and hard cheese salesman. He used to have donkeys that he used to go to the various villages and sell. That's, how, that's, that's our start. 
Yeah, well, it's settling the land of Israel, planting the holy vines and the wine, as we know, wine is uh, so holy and biblical and has so much significance. So it all it all really comes together. Um, and, and I hear that story so often, but um, each time I hear it from someone else, I hear another part. So I don't know if it's the fact that I'm changing and getting older, so different parts stand out to me or that everyone has their own um, memory of it. But it, it's an amazing story just as far as I was born in America. And I take that as a given. But in reality, I was the second generation born in America that ended up moving back to Israel. And my father and you were the first generation. So our branch of the family moved to America in the 1920s. And while my father was born in America, in Massachusetts, you were born in Canada. So how do you think after hearing that whole story of our heritage of where we come from, how do you think that having our roots in Israel affected you and my father and the rest of our family? Uh, our lives were always blessed with song. Uh, we sat around the Sabbath table. I think, I think when you think of our family, you think of Sabbath in many different ways. But we were blessed with song. And my father um, instilled in us a, a family anthem, which... We sang at uh, both my father's funeral and at your father's funeral. And that family anthem of of going back to the temple and going back and yearning for Jerusalem is something that we think about all the time and we're brought up with. Uh, love for Torah, for land of Israel was something that we always uh, were instilled with. Yechiel, in particular, in Israel, um, went, went, we went at 17 years old. He went to yeshiva, to Karen Biyavne, which is an intense yeshiva that combines both military service and learning. He was totally immersed in Torah studies. This was the time after the Six-Day War when every soldier was a hero, as they are now. But everyone looked at the, every soldier after the Six-Day War as being sort of blessed by God. His yeshiva promoted Bible study and army service, specifically in the paratrooper brigade. Yechiel was totally hooked. The soldiers with their new pressed uniforms and special red boots walk through the middle steps to the study hall, proud and tall. Yechiel yearned to walk up those middle steps. And he, and he desired to be one of the proud defenders of Israel. I think he always lived that dream. At the same time, Yechiel started being influenced by the writings of some of the Hasidic masters and developed a close bond with many of our Hasidic family. These family members who were so genuine, pious and learned, had such a tremendous impact on Yechiel and on his growing up and his love for Israel. They were so sincere. They were so pious. Yechiel Tzvi Ekstein came in 1880s. From that one person who was an orphan, there are probably well over 100 Yechiel Tzvi Eksteins now. There are over 60 families, Ekstein families, just in Beitar. Yechiel used to have a tradition. He would go up to the Mount of Olives with his cousins that were named Yechiel Tzvi Ekstein to the grave of Yechiel Tzvi Ekstein. Just think about that for a second. Going with people with your heritage to the place that really the Messiah will walk from. Look over Jerusalem and see your history. It's just an amazing, it was so impactful. And he was 17, 18, 19 years old. He was I there never for two heard years. That. He used to do that. That's such a deep message that I'm going to go back to in some other podcasts about the difference one person with one decision can make for eternity. Um, and, and that is represented both in Yechiel Tzvi coming as an orphan to Israel and in the decision that Saba, um, Saba Raba, your Saba, my uh, great-grandfather made to leave Israel in 1929 and to go to America. And so we also come from a, a generation, not only very strong, passionate Zionists, but also of rabbis. We go back many generations, everyone 
being rabbis, including my father. Um, and and so you guys grew up as the rabbi's children. Saba, my grandfather, your father, was the main rabbi of Ottawa, Canada, who had so many achievements there of uniting the communities. There's this theme that keeps going through with everything you do, with everything my father did, um, of uniting, uniting people who could be seen as different, but really bringing them together. So your father brought together different communities in Ottawa, making them one big synagogue. And you and my father were kind of put on this pedestal of being the rabbi's son. So how do you think that that affected the decisions that my father made in his life? How did it affect you? And how did it prepare you guys for the life that you ended up living? Uh, it's a great question, and we're very different people, my, my brother and I. Um, my father was the representative, actually, he, was the, he wasn't the chief rabbi, but he was the representative of Canadian jury to the Queen of England. I used to think, I, when I was a little kid, I used to think that there was a carriage outside my house with, a, with horses taking my father and my mother <laughs> to the Queen of England. Um, but there was a car outside, and my father would put on um, a tux and tails, and my mother would dress in a gown, and we knew that they were special. We knew that uh, my father was uh, more than just a rabbi, that he was a representative of a people. We were at a large shul a large synagogue in a very small community. We were only 8,000 Jews in, in Ottawa. Uh, most of them, uh, vast majority were not religious. We had very, very few religious friends. We were on an island. And because of that, we were, yes, put on a pedestal, but we were always looked at by everyone. Um, we knew we were in the eye of the public uh, to the point that... Um, I'm not going to say traumatized, but my mother used to do walking lessons with my sisters, how to walk into synagogue, keep your head up, put your arms down. Everyone's looking at you. And to this day, we no still pressure. joke about it. No pressure. For me, for me, I was always playing. I was a little kid. I was always playing soccer outside. I wasn't, I, I didn't come into synagogue that much as a little kid um, because I was outside having fun and always every Sabbath I tore my pants. There was, there were, <laughs> my, my, my pants always had knee, new knees on them because uh, I was always fun. a sign of having fun. Uh, my brother was older. And he was much more involved in the synagogue himself. Um, but my father always took us and made us part of his life. We went, even as children, to the Hillel Lodge, which was the old age home, every uh, many Fridays. And we would go and we would sit with my father as he talked to older people. We learned a lot from that. Um, it was a simple thing, but it meant a lot as we grew up. I remember as a child going with my father to blow the shofar for the mayor to the hospital in Ottawa to blow shofar for the mayor of the of the city. We were impacted by it. We all related to it differently. I knew, um, to be very honest with you, I saw the problems with the rabbit. In other words, I saw my father deal with people's problems. Um, it's something that Yechiel didn't necessarily do on a micro level. He did much more on a macro level. Oh, that's but, an interesting uh, connection. It's, it's um, the rabbi, the priest, the pastor, whoever it is, deals with so much more than, um, than just the day-to-day -day workings of a synagogue. You're dealing with people's lives. And we saw that. We saw how my father would deal with young couples who were getting divorced, the pain. And then we also saw the financial burdens that some people had and how they dealt with it. And it was always the rabbi that shouldered that burden. And that is something that I think we all learned from. My brother gravitated to it. I gravitated away from it. We also yeah. went, actually, we, my father used to take us to mourners' houses. We knew how to um, 
I think we learned how to speak to people and how to feel people's pain. I would say that would be um, one of the great things that we learned to deal, to understand people. And we also learned how to lead. You know, my father was a leader. Yeah. And people yeah. looked up to him. And you have right. to carry yourself a certain way. And um, we learned that. It's interesting. We're going to get to this as we talk about when the fellowship started, but that must have been a big source of pain of seeing my grandfather as this leader of my father, looking at his father as this leader and respected, and then him leaving the path to start the fellowship, where in the beginning, not only was he not respected, but he was completely ostracized, made fun of, and um, people didn't believe in his vision, which must have in, in looking up to his father who had this respect and was the head of the community during his childhood, it must, must have been an added blow even. We'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, but can you share any stories about us from uh, my father and your childhood that really captures, we've been talking kind of about the family history and the different uh, reality of what we grew up in and what you were born in. Now I'd love to hear a story that captures the kind of person that my father was. Um, your father was full of energy. He was always <laughs> full of beginning. energy from the beginning. And he was always, he was always, um, in the light. And I, I if you'll excuse me, if I sing one song that you, one stanza from a song you never heard. Out of the night, when the full moon is bright, comes a horse that's known as Zorro. That was all I heard as a kid. Zorro. Have you ever heard of Zorro? I have from that song from that from I that. definitely so, have heard before. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my brother would go around, take a mask, have a mask on his face and cape on his back. And he would do the Z. He had a sword and he would go zis, 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 and he would save the world. That was he, the way. And we grew up with that. He was always Zorro. He was full of energy. He was the life of the party. He was um, not shy. He was not shy as a, as, as a child. That is for sure. Thinking of being the savior, thinking of—I mean, I—I—I I, I, I was more, you know, I, I was Superman, you know, but he was—he was Zorro. He was Zorro. Okay. <laughs> he was Zorro. So saving the world. There's another thing that is, you know, as far as childhood memories that I have is um, sitting, sitting around the Sabbath table, um, and the reality is that when Yechiel moved to New York, I was seven years old. So my relationship with him as a child is very um, vague. I do remember we used to drive up to Camp Morasha, which is something that we don't take now. We appreciate more than we did then. Uh, my father was a rabbi, didn't make a lot of money, um, but he knew his priorities. And he knew that Ottawa wasn't the place to be in the summer. And we went to Camp Morasha and driving up, we didn't have suitcases. What we used to do is everyone had a plastic bag with their, um, with their clothes and the trunk was filled with clothes <laughs> and the car was filled with clothes. And we would sit down first and then my father would put bags of more clothes. They were not mine. They were all my sisters. Um, and we would, sit in the, we would sit in the back of the car and we would sing the whole way up to camp. Literally hours of singing together um and Zorro we didn't have on repeat no no we were singing Hebrew <laughs> songs we were singing but we used to sing lots of songs and it was it was fun if you talk about my childhood is very different than Yechiel's my childhood was all fun it's often that but way in families that the oldest and the youngest have a very different experience with their childhood, with the parents being in a different place and different experience with the siblings. And um, yeah, but I love I love hearing your perspective on it and your memories, just as the younger brother who had this fun, loving, had fun together did. So moving on to the next stage. Now we kind of I, I have even a more clear vision of what childhood was like and what family was like. Like. And in a way, it was very traditional. In a way, it was what 
a lot of Jewish families in America and Canada go through going to their synagogue, being part of the Jewish school, going to a Jewish camp, having the Shabbat, being involved in community. Um, And so when my father began working with Christians to support Israel and the Jewish people, it wasn't as typical as his childhood was. He ruffled a lot of feathers in the Jewish community. And I'm just trying to imagine with all these stories that you told me and all the different demuyot, all the different personalities involved, and how did those closest to him react to his vision of building bridges between Christians and Jews that at that point was a totally new concept and in a way was totally taboo? Uh. Yechiel was always brilliant. He always was, even from childhood. And it was, it was obvious that he was a star. But he was also very independent. He would take advice, rarely, but he would take advice, but he was always the decision maker. He did what he wanted to and what he felt comfortable with. And then he would tell us. We always supported him. Even if there were doubts or a lack, I would say actually at the beginning, a lack of understanding. Yeah. The criticism that he faced came a lot later, and you probably felt it more at the beginning than we did, or that I did. For many years, he, we were oblivious to what anything that was going on. We grew up in a city, as I said, a small Jewish community. We all had friends who weren't Jewish. Our best friends weren't Jewish. And Yechiel actually had a friend down the block, uh, Brian Hawley, I don't know if you've ever ever heard the name, who later became a priest. Uh, Yechiel would tell us he was reaching out to non-Jews to work together to make the world a better place. You know, how could that be anything bad? (laughs) He said he was forging unity, and only later did we appreciate the magnitude of what he was doing. When Abraham went with Isaac, it is placed right near where where he lived, where Abraham looked out at the Mount of of Zion, the Temple Mount, the Mount of Olives, and he said, it, "The Bible says, and he saw the place from far, and that is what life is, and that was what his life was. He saw his goal." And he was going for that goal, but he needed someone to go with him. You have to go together with someone. And he didn't find it in the Jewish community. There were probably one or two people that worked with him at the beginning, but it was really the evangelical community that joined with him. And he was became oblivious to everything else for a time. And he just concentrated on moving ahead. Yechiel had it was a calling. Yechiel had a vision, and his vision was a a picture that he actually picked up once in China of mountains that he hit up. And he really believed that he was on a mission, a goal, and he wouldn't let anything else ruffle his feathers. That lasted for a while, but it didn't last forever. At a time, at a certain time, it started to get to him as time would go on and um, and he became more impacted by the criticism uh, that came. A few times uh, in my mind, memories that I have that really were um, impactful to him and really troubled him was uh, Tamar's bas mitzvah. That time... Um, when he didn't necessarily get to do all, he faced criticism in his own community uh, when he wasn't able to study the Talmud the same way people were saying, we don't want you to study with us. He was starting then to be ostracized from the community that he really felt was his community. And he took that very hard. I was with him actually at a very traumatic moment for him when the Rabbinical Council of America, at one of their conventions, uh, one of the rabbis got up and specifically um, put him uh, put a ban on him. Um, I was with him in the car. I remember specifically where I was and how hurt he was, how anger he angered he was, and he just he said they simply don't get it. 
Right. And the wild thing is that all those people who criticized him, all those people came around, they became his not benefactors they became his supporters in uh, in everything he did and yeah. they realized that they were simply on the wrong side of history and yeah. you know he had a mission and they appreciated the mission and i think that was across the board yeah yeah it, i i look at it really as three different stages as i hear you talking in the beginning that people just didn't get it were the words that you used and i think that's really perfect it's not even that they rejected it uh, they didn't understand ignorance what ignorance is the word i ignorance would say and a lack of, of of vision and dreaming it's something that's never been done that you know when people said i remember him telling me when he would tell people in the jewish community I, i'm working with christians to support israel and they'd say oh what what do they want to do convert us or kill us he said, no, you, it's a new reality. You have to be open to a new reality besides that of what you read in the history books. We have to, they're reaching out their hands and we have a choice now. Do we want to reach out our hands in return or not and have strategic friends and partners that the Jewish people have never had before and the Christian community to have this opportunity to be part of biblical prophecy coming to fruition, the land of Israel, helping and standing with the Jewish people. And there's so much that that, that we have to grow together, to learn together and to accomplish together. And, and so I look at it really as that first stage that people didn't even understand understand what my father's vision was. They just rejected it. And then there was a second stage when the fellowship started raising funds and distributing it to different causes uh, to help Jewish people in need, Aliyah, and helping Jews in the former Soviet Union. And then suddenly the Jewish community in a way didn't, they still didn't understand it, but they were willing to hear it and accept it. And then the third stage, I think happened pretty recently, where it suddenly, the entirety of the Jewish people got it, that this is bigger than donations. This is bigger than helping the poor, even though the fellowship is the largest philanthropic organization in Israel. This is this represents itself in creating a stronger world and a stronger future for our children, whether it's moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, or recognizing the Golan Heights, or that Israel is our greatest ally in a time when there's so much divisiveness, there are these individuals and community of Christians who stand together with one agenda to help Israel and the Jewish people. And that is something that my father in the beginning saw, but took the Jewish community so many years in order to um, in order to really understand this vision that he had. And I remember him there was a time me, in there. Uh, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. a time in there that also when he, he he pivoted to Israel, when he pivoted mm -hmm. from just the religion part and the with the evangelical community where he pivoted to Israel and he started his Washington office, that was a, a major pivot in his life. And I remember um, Senator Lieber, or Lieberman, who was um, who was such a, a fan of Yechiel's and who yeah. helped him um, in, in Washington. And I remember I went with Yechiel and a group of evangelical Christians to meet Condi Rice when uh, she was Secretary of State. And Yechiel and I went outside for a minute by ourselves. And we were talking on outside, we were in the White House. And we were, I remember it yesterday. And um, they were the, they were peppering Condi Rice about her stance on the West Bank, on Yudavish Shamron. Mm -hmm. And we were outside and someone came and met us from the community, uh, from the, uh, the those people that were meeting with her. And they said, what are you doing outside? God's inside right now. He said, you wow. can feel the, you can really feel wow. the passion and the unity. And uh, it was really a beautiful, beautiful meeting. And that night, um, there was a wonderful dinner. And I'm just going to stick one story in there from that dinner. Please. And that is, I was, I was sitting, I was at a table, Yechiel was on the dais. And uh, after he spoke, so that was the end of the, uh, of the, of the evening. And people were waiting to talk to him and sign a book that he had. And someone came over to me and he said, you're obviously Achiel's brother. And I said, yeah, we look alike. And um, he said, I, I have something for him. And he said, I'm Mexican. I just sold my 
taxi cab business and I want to give my 10% to the wow. rabbi. And he wow. gave me a manila envelope with cash in it. And I said, you want a receipt? He goes, no, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to have a chance to meet the rabbi. And I tried to take him over, but he didn't want to go. And he said, this is for the rabbi's work. And that was really the time in my life where I realized things were different. It wow. was, it was a different wow. thing. And that was, now that pivot that he made in Washington was really when he took the organization to another level. That's amazing. It's amazing. And I love that story because we still, I still have those stories all the time. I remember, uh, yeah, we're at times now when people in Israel, especially, but uh, around the world really know um, that the fellowship is a success on a large scale. And that everyone's talking about it. And I remember people would refer to my father in Israel as an overnight success. And I remember one time he looked at me and he said, I worked 30 long, hard years to become an overnight success. And so I was just a child in those early years of the fellowship that you were describing that there were so many difficulties. And one of the greatest gifts, I think, that I learned from my father was how he never brought the stress of his work home with him. When he walked in the door, he was just Abba. He wasn't the president of an organization. He didn't either bring that pride back, he, or, nor did he bring the stress. Um, but do you remember what it was like for him in those early days when he struggled? Did he ever talk to you about it? Uh, at the beginning, not really a lot because he was just on a mission. You know, he, had yeah. the, he went to Chicago from the ADL for a specific purpose. And he fulfilled that purpose. It was the the march, and you could talk about that as well as I can, but it was the march that the Nazis were walking through Skokie, and um, they were trying to prevent the march. And uh, he realized early on that he couldn't do it alone. And he reached out to other people, and it was totally accepted, and no one really um, questioned it. Um, I think as time went on, uh, you, you don't get criticism until you're meaningful. In other words, when you're, when you're on your own and you're just raising money and you're talking to some people and you're forging, you know, like friendships, no one really cares. Um, yeah. And that was, there, there was a stress. His stress at that point was pure financial in my mind. It was, how can I keep this thing going? I really believe in it. Is it yeah. going to happen? And that was his main success. And once in a while, he would just get a check and he would, his life would change because he knew that there was someone out there that was helping him and he could continue. So I would say that in the first years, we were totally oblivious to any stress other than me. I would be totally involved in his uh, financial stress, as you would say. I think as time went on, um, he was clearly impacted with it. I think his real stress, in, in my mind at least, and this wasn't when you were a child, but this was when you were fully aware of of what was going on, which was when he would move to Israel. This yeah. that he was able to deal with people not accepting him and not um, agreeing with him in America because he knew he was right. When he came to Israel, it was a different reality. He saw that people were actually against him. They were they, not that they didn't agree him, but they were against him to the point where he had um, posters plastered up against him to the point where he needed Shin Bet security. Yeah, he had yeah. death threats. He needed security. Yeah. That was a very stressful point of his life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And 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 he didn't really know what to do with it. I remember I remember uh the Israeli government told him he should have security. There were significant death threats against him and they were posted on his house and at the office. And I remember him talking to me about it and saying, um, I'm not going to get a security guard because if somebody tried to do something to me, what would the security do? Kill him? I don't want to be responsible for anyone's death. 
and that that's something that stayed with me that that's the reason why he didn't have a security guard because if someone tried to harm him the security guard might have to harm them in return and it wasn't something he he wanted to um, have any part of he was a lot like uh, i always say he was a lot like joseph um you know joseph went he says i'm going to look for my brothers he had a search a meaning in life but yet like joseph in so many ways he was a dreamer he was just like him he was misunderstood by his people by his own brothers and he was maligned by his own people but in the end he rose to greatness and in the end his brothers not that they bowed down to him, but in the end, they knew he was right. And, and that's yeah. really history. It's really yeah. history. But it, the stress, you talk about the stress, it came in a, a, a very uh, difficult point in his life. And in, uh, in, it came a point where he was alone. Uh, he came to Israel alone and he felt alone. And to be... Um, to be alone and to be criticized, you really question. And I think that's why I specifically speak about uh, his first time in Israel as far as stress in his life, to your question. He did have yeah. something he found comfort in. That was a time in his life where I reached out to him and where our fr our closeness really, really, uh, I mean, we were always close when he was alone in that stressful period. Um, I really reached out to him all the time, but he found some comfort. He found comfort or he, maybe he became more intense listening to a, a song, which he listened to maybe 20, 30 times a day. It was a song by Sarit Haddad called Shema Yisrael. And, um, and I'll read you the words. I'll read you just one note Could from it. Could you sing it? it? Uh, no, because it's in Hebrew. <laughs> I'll sing later. But it says, when the heart cries, only God hears. The pain rises out of a soul. A man falls down before he sinks. With a little prayer, he cuts to silence. Shema Yisrael, my God, you're the omnipotent. You gave me life. You gave me everything. And... Um, it's uh, when the heart cries, you find comfort in God. And that was your father. He, he really, he was in pain. For that time, it was really hard. He was on a mission from God and he felt alone. I tried everything I could, his friend George, his kids, but he was alone and people were criticizing him. And he was able to pick himself up. And you know what? Even when he was, you know, scared or even when he was stressed, he would pick himself up and continue his mission and he didn't let it deter him. So um, he was really special. Yeah. Yeah. And life was busy for both of you with kids, with work, with traveling. How, how did you stay connected to each other? Uh, we stayed connected all the time. Um, we never missed a Shabbos call the same way he didn't do with you. And no matter how busy he was, he had a particular time uh, when he was very tense for some reason, which I never understood, but he was extremely tense writing his speeches for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Yes. The guy spoke to a million people a year. But when he prepared his speeches before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, he was, he was a wreck. You could yeah. see it. But yet he'd be in a meeting, all tense, and then he said, my kid brother is on the phone. He always referred to me as his kid brother, and we never missed a week. And um, he used to call me my kid brother, and when I was 50 years old, he'd say, I can't believe you started shaving already. <laughs> he, always, he always looked at me as his little brother, but he was always proud of me. And I used to do something that, uh, especially as I, when I retired, we shared the blessings of life together. And he would tell me wherever he was, what he's doing, and I would go for a run on the beach pretty much a couple of times a week. And 
every time, well, not every time I would do it, but at least once a week, I would call him up and I'd FaceTime with him and I'd say, living the blessings of God. And I would just take the camera and I would point to the beach. And um, it, we all actually, we have both felt a lot of comfort in water in general. It's an extinct thing to really enjoy the swimming in the beach, but we all felt that we were blessed and he wanted to share his blessings with me. And I always did with him and we never miss, never miss. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. That would, those uh, pre Shabbat calls were sacred for him. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten calls from every, I think everywhere in the world. It's, I only have 30 seconds. There's no connection here, but Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> it's, uh, he, he it's, had a way, he had a way before Shabbos. Um, he would speak to all of us and never yeah. miss. Right. And yet he, what he would do is he would pretty much shut off his iPhone, shut off his computer and detox almost before Shabbos. And he would yeah. get into the mood for Shabbos. He had an ability to bring in another soul into his life, his own soul, the Shabbos soul. And he would sit on the chair. He would sing. He would speak to us. And he would get ready for the Sabbath. And he would welcome it as another soulful part of his life. At the end of Sabbath, he would cry because he didn't want that uniqueness in his life, his love of God, his love of people, his love of the Sabbath. He didn't want it to leave because he knew reality was just minutes away. And he yeah. really was able to bring that part of his life in and make it special for him and for everyone around him. Wow. Wow. Yeah, definitely the Shabbos was the time when he shined. He had an amazing way of putting everything on the side, all of the stress, all of the worries, and really being present within that, which is something I try to always remember and, and learn from as well. Mind, mindfulness, being and living in the moment. Present. Yes, 100%, yep. 100%. So Uncle Beryl, you look a lot like my father. And I remember right after my father died and you FaceTimed me, I I broke down because my father that was his uh that was his that's what he would do he would he would just randomly facetime you in the middle of the day so it didn't matter where you were what you were doing you'd facetime and you see his smiling face and it was uh both the best surprise in the world and also sometimes abba could you write to me before and right after he died when you facetimed me and i saw your face and it was exactly like my father coming up it's one of those times i remember of really kind of facing that loss of it will never be my father again that's FaceTiming me. Um, but looking at you, you just look so much like him and people often confuse you for him. So do you have any stories about when you've been confused for my father and did it bother you or did it ever feel like you were in my father's shadow in some way? Uh, people definitely would notice, um, you know, now obviously not, not as much, but they still do. But, uh, I used to walk into restaurants. We used to walk into restaurants. Um, my wife and I, my wife Doreen and I would walk into restaurants and people would look at us and say, I know that guy from somewhere, but I can't right. place it. Right. So they knew the similarity and, um, and uh, they knew the, who I was. People knew who I was when I walked in because we did look and Yahil's face was so, you know, prominent in the country um right. the, the, three stories well first one i told about the mexican guy he clearly right. i mean i was just sitting on a table and he came up to me um right. and he gave me he gave me thirty thousand it was thirty thousand dollars in cash which was a lot of money to be that carrying around in an envelope yes. um and the the two the two other stories. One was funny because I was flying to um, on El Al and uh, to Israel, and there was actually an article in the El Al Journal on the Karen Lee Didut on the organization with pictures of Yechiel. And the stewardess came up with me. I was in coach, and she said, "Kvod Harav Ekstein, dear Rabbi Ekstein, <laughs> would you like to switch to business class?" 
<laughs> oh boy, business class. Sure. sure. Business class. <laughs> I, saw, I said to her, I said, well, I'm his brother. And I'm, can I still switch? And she goes, no, only no. for Rabbi X. <laughs> that was one. But another one, which was really, um, it, it was beautiful moment for me in my life actually it's something i won't forget is um president paris da- uh, prayed on on yom kippur rosh hashanah yom kippur in my synagogue and uh and he you know, i walked over to him to wish him a chag sameach and i have i have a, a like a spiel like a thing that i do i say you know my dear president i'm yechiel's brother and um, and I started walking over, and he goes to me. He goes, "I can you tell you're Rabbi related Epstein. to Rabbi Eckstein." And then I started talking, and he says, "Not only do you look like him, but you even sound like him." <laughs> so we have a certain um, we have a certain voice. We and we I think we have a certain presence that we carry ourselves a certain way. Yeah. And and we're both big. We're both big guys, and we definitely look alike. And it's something that I am always proud of. I just I walk tall because, not that I walk in his footsteps, but I walk next to him. I mm-hmm. and I always felt that way. Always felt that way. Yeah. Never, oh, uh, never a moment in my life was I ever um, jealous of him and his life. He had hard times. And I appreciated his success more. Um, I think I think of of Moshe and Aaron. You know Moses and Aaron. I don't think there was a moment of jealousy, a moment um, where I wanted to be in his shoes. He would actually often say to me, "I wish I could live your life," yeah. but he had a different calling, and and mm-hmm. I have a different calling, and we each have one. And I always viewed it that way. Always pride, never anything else. And to this day, I still feel that way. And uh, that's really it. What a it. gift for both of you. What a gift for both of you. How would you sum up my father's legacy to the world? Um, that's a little harder. Um, his legacy. I think that, you know, I mean, clearly there is the simple legacy which I'll call the legacy that the world will always see. And then there's my legacy that I have with him. He changed history. It's just simple to say it that way. He changed history. He was the first to reach out to the evangelical community. And he was the only one for many, many years. As we spoke about before, he reached out. And he reached out alone. And it took a long time for people to appreciate him. And his legacy, the fact that the capital of the, uh, the fact that the embassy in, of the United States is in Jerusalem is thanks to the work of Donald Trump, especially my friend David Friedman, Jared, it all came from a base of Yechiel Eckstein. It really did. His legacy is changing history. He accomplished so much because not only did he deal with the evangelical community and change history there, but his um, the Karen Lididut, the whole way of charity being given in Israel, the organization that you have in Israel, it's amazing that one person, you too, yeah, one person could to do just the United States would be um, Dayenu, as they say, would be enough. How could anyone do all that? And then when you combine it with the charity that he was given, that he gives out to people and the care that he gives out to people in Israel, I think he changed history there also. So to me, his legacy is twofold as far as the public legacy. His legacy is both reaching out and building bridges with the evangelical community and introducing that friendship, that bond to the world, to the world, South America, Korea, Middle East, it's, it's all 
the fact that there are relations between other religions, I believe, is all because of his work. And the work that he did in charity in Israel is Dayenu. It's amazing what he did. For me, it's all his soul, his caring for people, for each individual, for family, for the land of Israel, for the people of Israel, and also for the Torah of Israel, which I didn't mention. His just his he his soul is what I miss. To me, his legacy was an angel. He really was a special person that we were gifted to have as such a close relative. He was an angel sent by God, and he filled his mission, and he fulfilled his legacy that which you carry on. But it's his soul that I remember, his warmth yeah. and his caring and his love. Love was who he was. He really loved it. Talk about evangelicals, it's love. Talk about charity, it's love. Talk about family, it's love. He was, he was an angel sent by God. Ah, beautiful. Definitely, I think um, that summarizes him very well, those two identities of both the personal and the family where he was fully present there and fully committed and fully passionate and fully supportive. And then the other side of at work and with the mission being led with this vision to be fully present there, but really uh, overriding both of them was this uh, being being driven by love and by a connection to God that he knew his calling and felt um, oftentimes burdened by it, to be honest, but more often than that, being privileged to be able to be completing this uh, mission that he had in life. I'll talk about one time, and I'll sing a little bit, but I'll talk about one time where I think about him all the time. And this really sums up who Yechiel was to me. When we pray Saturday morning, we, as he did, I do the same thing. I take my talit, I wrap it around my body, I put it over my head, and I close off myself from the world. And I sing, Nishmat Kolchai, Tivarechechimcha. And I talk about, in prayer, the soul of the person that prays to God. And that's who he was. That's who I try to be. That's how I remember him. A special soul who prays to God. So Beryl, was it a little bit surprising to the family when I got involved in my father's work and we started working together at the fellowship and that eventually I ended up uh, leading the fellowship after his passing? You're such a spiritual person and you have so much spirit and soul from my brother and and that's what comes off often first but there's so much um of your mother in you that um i think about and i tell her all the time whenever when it, not all the time whenever i speak to her um because you're a blend of your father and your mother sure. and your mother has an amazing ability to to deal with life's issues in a rational manner. She's spiritual, but she's so much more rational than your father was. The your father's and the an ex- your fa- right. Your father <laughs> your father was like an, an ex team. We act first, we think later. You are a blend, and that's it's great sometimes, but it's not great all the time. You're an amazing blend, and your mother has a lot to do with how great you are, and 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 that's the reality of life. You're a very special person, yeah. And I can't imagine anyone doing what you're doing the way you're doing it. And um, and I love the fact that you're. So, um, Bishalva, you're, you have a, a place in life that, um, that I think I yearn for, um, your father definitely yearned for, this saying called Yishuv Hadat. And your father always was 
looking how to do something else. Like he always said, you know, there's another mountain. I think I've reached the top, but I got to find another mountain to climb. And, and he never had that like serenity now type of thing that you possess. And I think that makes you so um, unbelievably capable to do the work that you're doing that no one else could do because you're a blend of that spirituality. You're amazing, Yael. You really are. Thank you, Uncle Beryl. Thank you so much. You're amazing. This has been... You're amazing. I've learned so much in this talk. And I um, thank you. I thank you for sharing another side of my father with the world. Thank you for listening to the Conversations with Yael podcast. If you like what you have heard, please check out my weekly podcast, Nourish Your Biblical Roots, that explores the Jewish roots of the Christian faith with inspirational and ancient teachings. You can also visit me at mybiblicalroots.org for more of my teachings, videos, blogs, and books. Follow me on Instagram at Yael underscore Eckstein or on Facebook at Yael Eckstein. Shalom and see you next month.